Your nose canals are very small. <laughs> the delicate. The delicate little nose canals. Delicate nose canals. Nose canals is a weird word. Nostrils is what they're technically called, I believe. <laughs> we just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. It's <laughs> mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Welcome to Freudian Sips, the podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. And it's so good to be with you again and to have you here with us. After a hundred years. It feels like a million and two. It's been a million and two years. years. It's it has been indeed. two weeks. <laughs> it feels like a long time. Uh, time flies and goes slow at the same time. Flies I don't know. I don't know. Slow. Time is tricky these days. Yeah. I, I do feel like I need to mention we might have new listeners because we had a weird spike in listenership over the past week. There was one day where we got like, I want to say four times as many listens as we usually get wow. in a day. Wow. Did something happen that like promoted us? No. It was like last Friday. So some of you told some of your friends, and yeah. they told two and a hundred people were like, "I will definitely listen," <laughs> and then they never listened again. So maybe there was one person who was just really popular. One person listened to our fifty episodes like three times each, and they were they were like, "Wow, wow. that's a lot." Well, if we have new listeners, welcome. welcome. Welcome, new listeners. Please leave us a rating and review somewhere. That's right. That's what we say. So, ma'am, look. Anna. Is there stuff we need to talk about before we just go into the episode? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I should disclaim, maybe, if you couldn't tell by my voice, by the nose thing that's happening here, I am a little sick. Anna's a wee bit ill. A wee bit ill. I don't have the coronavirus, I promise. It's a head cold. <laughs> we do sometimes still get head colds. Yeah, that happens, world. even there though are the coronavirus is here. Yes. And we do not here. I don't think it's in here. our city. No, I think we're good right now. And though it's a serious thing, and we are praying for everybody yes. to be safe, I've also just had enough of hearing about it right now. So <laughs> let's talk about something different. All right, Mom's a little we? done with the Corona craze. <laughs> I'm a little over it, but I am praying for everybody. So sure, because that's what I do, baby. <laughs> So what are we talking about that's not the coronavirus? Um, we're going to talk about attachment today because this episode is kind of a follow-up episode of our last one. It's a little bit of a part two. Yeah. And so what number are we on these days? Oh, God. 52? Okay. So 51, episode 51, we talked about, say their names for me, Bowlby. John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. Ainsworth. And we talked about their theories of attachment. And so if you'd like to do that one before this episode, if you haven't heard that part, you might want to listen to that first. Just you don't have to. This, this is 53. Last one was 52. Okay. 
glad you cleared that up. I know. Up. So, I have been mortified. <laughs> if you'd like to know a little bit more backstory about where the attachment stuff came from, you I want to go back and listen to 52. Yeah. But this episode will stand alone, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. We'll, okay. we'll try to go over the stuff that, we'll do that a, is relevant. We'll do a quick review kind of thing. Right. So, how do we do a quick review? Well, the quickest review I found is a single sentence that I thought was very good. Mm -hmm. John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth developed a theory known as attachment theory after inadvertently studying children who were patients in a hospital at which they were working. (laughs) Inadvertently studying. I accidentally studied these kids. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I didn't mean to. It's a bit more than that. Yeah. Bowlby yeah, so. made attachment theory before Mary Ainsworth came along, and she kind of independently developed her own attachment theory. Mm-hmm. And then they met each other and they became best buddies and mountains. They're mountains. Oh, now. yeah. They're, they have mountains named after them, too. No, yeah, they I became mountains. <laughs> <laughs> they are the mountains. Okay. If you become a good enough psychologist, you get you to become, become a mountain. mountain. <laughs> okay. Where do we start? Well, we talked last week about the development of attachment theory as a whole. Right. And today we are talking about, so as attachment theory developed, especially Mary Ainsworth created attachment styles. So basically the ways that our attachment can develop Mm -hmm. when we're babies and then into adults. It's not really a developmental life theory. It's like your attachment style develops when you're a baby, Right. And then it carries into your life forward. Right. But it's not like it really changes unless you specifically work on it. So when Mary Ainsworth developed her theory, her styles, she had three of them. And then later, I'm going to sneeze. (laughs) (laughs) And then later, other people kind of added to it. And actually, if you look up attachment, it goes in all kinds of directions. Because lots of people have added their own twist to this theory. And so they've named it a lot of different things. So you'll find all kinds of different words. We're going to stay pretty core. We're going to stay with what Mary called them. You really need to sneeze, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Look into the light. That I, helps you sneeze. Does it? Yeah. Well, that's what somebody told me once. It affects some part of your brain that helps you sneeze. Okay, it's not working for Anna. So. I'm just staring into the <laughs> Anna's staring into staring the bright into the sunlight. Sun. <laughs> uh, but did I mention you should not <laughs> supposed to? Stand? There's so many rules. Well, I was like looking at the light. Okay. I stared directly <laughs> into the sun. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not. <laughs> that's not what I meant. So the four styles of attachment. Whew. Yeah. the The first three that Mary developed were secure. Anxious ambivalent and anxious avoidant. And then later on, someone added disorganized, and Mary put her stamp of approval on that. Right, so, so that's that's why it's we're, in the canon. Right, yeah. so we're including it in that because she did indeed agree that there was there was a fourth one, and she even when she agreed and put her stamp on that one, she said this one may develop more in the future and be a little more all encompassing that particular style. So right, so she did that. I, I think I want to just kind of add at the beginning and then probably at the end again, too, that the idea that Anna said, you know, we developed this in our childhood, babyhood, actually. Babyhood. Our, is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> babyhood. Our babyhood. But that's that's then kind of who we are. And one of the things we talk about all the time on our podcast is self-awareness and how that as an adult, if you're having certain issues, 
being self-aware regarding your attachment style could help you maybe through some rough spots. Or if you currently have children or around children or concerned about children, they might be dealing with some attachment issues that can be worked on through therapy. Right. So how about if we first, can we start with a secure one first? Sure. Or did you want to say that for last? No, I I do want to start with it. Yeah. Yeah. So secure attachment is pretty self-explanatory. So when it came to Mary's strange situation protocol, oh, we should probably explain that, huh? Yeah, maybe. Because that sounds weird. Do like a brief. Sure. The strange situation was the experiment that uh, Mary used where she, and very briefly, she basically put a mommy and a baby in a room and there were some toys in there. And then there were different situations where like a stranger came into the room and they measured how the baby reacted. At some point, the mommy... And they did use mommies for this. Yeah. The mommy would leave the room and and then they would watch how the child reacted. And there were different situations. Like sometimes they would just wait a while till the mom came back in the room. They'd measure what the baby did. There was part of the situation and another another part of it was where the stranger tried to give comfort and they measured how the baby took to that. Right. So we're talking toddlers basically yeah in this experiment it was like what like 18 months to mm-hmm. three years ish toddlers yeah and so that was the strange situation i guess it was kind of like that the baby was in a strange the situation. baby there was stranger measure right all <laughs> right measuring the baby's reaction not only to their caregiver and like i said in this particular experiment or whatever however you want to call it Protocol. it was it was the mommy <laughs> Right. That they're well, looking at. I think it's called strange situation because one of the keys of attachment theory is that a good attachment means that the baby has a secure base from which they can go out and explore different situations. Right. Like new situations, strange situations, right. if you will. So attachment, they have a confidence and right a- is measuring whether or not they feel like their caregiver is a secure, safe base. Right. From which to venture out into the world. Exactly. Okay. Okay, so back to secure. So secure attachment means like when we're talking about the strange situation protocol, these are the kids that showed distress at the situation, but were ultimately able to compose themselves. And that's because they knew that their caregiver would eventually return. That even as a baby... They had the trust built up that I know my caregiver is going to come back and provide me with comfort. Mm -hmm. So they had that secure base that I was just talking about where they know that they're safe to go explore because especially when their parent is in the room, okay, my caregiver's right there and they're going to take care of me if I go explore and something bad happens. And if they go away, that they'll come back. Right. I think that's important because that that's the rest of... Because like you said, even though they got a little upset when mom left, they didn't get too out of control and they kind of composed themselves. And when mom came back, they were very happy to see mom. Yeah. But then they were ready to explore How's again. How with object permanence? When does that develop? Before this age. Yeah, earlier than that. So this is kind of weird. In the strange situation protocol, there were various types of secure attachment. Did you see this at all when you were looking at the strange situation protocol? I don't know. Remind me. There's like B1, B2. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What B1, the B2, hell B3, is B4. that? Uh-huh. It's like B1 is secure reserved. B2 is secure inhibited. There's secure balanced and secure reactive. Mm-hmm. I could not find what this meant. From what I could find, it's basically like stylistic changes in how the kiddo reacted to the caregiver leaving. But ultimately, it was that they were distressed at the caregiver leaving and then comforted by the caregiver when they came back. Right. I don't know. 
Mary. Mary. <laughs> Mary, you should have explained this better. What does this mean? But that makes sense. If you have a whole bunch of toddlers, they're, yeah, they're going to react it in, differently. It seems to me like more of a... Personality. Like a draft on how to categorize these kids. Right, right. Like putting them into general things and then being like, oh, we can th- just throw all of this under secure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, because some of them probably seemed more emotional than others, you know, and yet they were all secure. Right. Yeah. And that could be just a temperament thing. I mean, that doesn't necessarily have to be an attachment thing. Exactly. Now, secure attachment is the most common form of attachment. From what I could find, a little over half of people have secure attachment. Now, that's fine. However, the way I've heard it phrased is half of people don't have a secure attachment. Right. Which the other three types we'll talk about are varying levels of not good attachment. Right. Which is pretty bad. That can cause dysfunction in your life. Yes. So basically, as we're talking about the attachment styles, we'll also be chatting about things we need to do to treat these various styles. Mm -hmm. But this is the one that doesn't really need treatment. People with this attachment style still need treatment for other things, probably. I mean, this just because you have a good attachment style doesn't mean you don't have any problems. Right. It just means that probably your problems are not relationship-based. Right. right. (laughs) Exactly. So they don't need treatment for relationships with others. Uh, They usually have higher self-esteem. They seek out social connections and support a little better. They're able to openly share their feelings. They're more empathetic. I'm running out of breath because I can't (laughs) breathe. (gasps) And they can set better boundaries. Like boundaries about when to breathe. I need to tap into my like choir knowledge from like when to take a breath in the middle of a measure. (laughs) They're more likely to have trusting long-term relationships because basically their blueprint for building a relationship is healthier and it's it's more comprehensive. That's a great way to say it. So they're able to form these solid relationships and maintain current relationships. Right. That it's not only just they know how to make a lot of friends, Mm -hmm. that they're able to sustain those deeper relationships that are more open and genuine. And when they lose a relationship, because again, just because you have a secure attachment style doesn't mean your relationships are never going to end. Exactly. Because life happens. Yeah. But they handle it better. Mm -hmm. They handle it well. So think of a trusting, loving relationship between two partners who like are open with each other. Mm -hmm. That's a secure relationship, baby. (laughs) We should have brought up more than one Kleenex. Can you use that like gift wrap tissue paper on the end of the table? There's this one that has my blood on it. Oh. Somebody needs to do some <laughs> toxic waste Gross. collection in this. Room. This is why I don't care. <laughs> I think that the the word that keeps coming up again and again as you read about secure attachment is trust. Yeah. And it's that level of trust that when we know from our blueprint, as Anna said, that we can there there are people who are trustworthy. Right. And therefore, we can trust others as we build new relationships. And we learn how to be a person who is trusted ourselves. Because we generalize. Mm-hmm. Like, as, as we're babies, the only people or the people we interact with the most are our parents. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that, not logically, because we can't really do that when we're a baby, but it's inborn in us. I mean, it's evolutionary that, like, this is the person who is supposed to be taking care of me. Mm-hmm. That's why they're the caregiver. So we generalize that, where if we have a caregiver who does provide us with a good level of care as we grow up, as we apply that to other relationships, we say, like, oh, I had a caregiver who was very attentive to my needs, so I believe that other people will do that, too. I believe that there are people who will be attentive to my needs, mm-hmm. where if you don't have that, it's harder to say, like, 
well, my parents didn't do it, but this rando will do it. <laughs> like this person who I don't know is going to be attentive to my needs. Like, no, if my parent couldn't give me that or my caregiver doesn't have to be a parent, like we said in the last episode, mm-hmm. like, who's going to do that if my parent couldn't even do that? Mm-hmm. Not a rando. A rando. <laughs> have you never heard that before? I think I've heard you use that word, but I don't know that's, that I've heard that anybody else right. use that. That sounds right. <laughs> sounds like an Anna word to that's, me. Uh, it's just, it always has struck me as a weird shortened form because it's just taking off a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Which changes the pronunciation. A rando. Random. <laughs> okay. So how, mom, how, how, how does this style form? How, if you are a caregiver, can you help your caregivee? As I did see it in my research, legitimately called that, form a secure attachment. So what, from what I found, studies showed that a permissive parenting style, which basically means low discipline and structure and high responsiveness, or an authoritative parenting style, which means you have high discipline and demands and high responsiveness, and authoritative is usually called the best parenting style overall. But it also just the high levels of responsiveness are kind of what's key there. So that means affection and acceptance of right. the children. Right. That's what develops the secure attachment. So it's how you respond to the child. That's the key. Yeah. yeah. Because they listed permissive in there mm-hmm. along with authoritative. But in other sources I found, it said that permissive parenting causes things like low achievement and bad emotional regulation and making poor decisions. So there's a lot of bad things that come with like, we just let the kids do whatever they want. Right. But the key there is that they have high responsiveness. And so, okay, maybe they're making some bad decisions, but they have a high level of trust in their caregiver. Right. So at least that part's good. Right. But Other again, parts are going to be an yeah. issue. Yeah. When you use the word authoritative, it kind of has a negative, that word has a negative so connotation. there's another parenting style called authoritarian, mm. which is high demands and low responsiveness. Mm, that's bad. That's bad. And then there's another one that's like, it's not ambivalent. That's one of these. It's something Mm -hmm. like that, though. But Mm -hmm. it's basically low demands and low responsiveness. Indifferent, maybe? Something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. It's very much like... bad stuff. Not even going to interact with the kid. So don't do that. Go for authoritative. So be responsive to your children. Exactly. To your little children. Attend to your kids. I know there's that thing with like, leave them to cry, Mm -hmm. but... Studies show that that's not good. Your your baby needs to know that when they cry, you will go get them and you'll provide them comfort. Oh, so this might be something that we can talk about later. <laughs> but we can talk about it now if we want. While I was researching secure attachment, I came across a person named J.R. Harris, mm-hmm. the arch nemesis of attachment. <laughs> da, da, da. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I think yes. it's a girl. I think it's a woman. <laughs> so the main... This is the main critic of attachment theory. Harris says that people are more influenced by their peers than they are by their parents as they grow up. Huh. And they say that, like, nurture doesn't matter. Nature is more important. Hmm. Because, like, attachment theory is bogus because it doesn't matter how we're raised and how the attentiveness. Wow. That's that's a lot. I know. blatant. So... (laughs) This is a quote. The common example used is a child with immigrant parents. The children are able to continue to speak their parents' original language whilst at home, but the children can also learn the new language and speak it without an accent while the parents' accent remains. Harris claims that children learn these things from their peers in an attempt to fit in with others, which somehow got linked 
to attachment? I I'm like sitting here thinking, what? That has Does that nothing have to do with attachment. <laughs> Nothing. First of all, by the time you're learning language, especially from peers, you are way past attachment age. Right. Like exactly. the development of attachment right. age. It's already done. Yeah. Your attachment style's Did there. Did she notice that? That there I was don't an age know. thing there? I don't know. I don't think that person is a very good arch nemesis. No. Not a good... It's like one of those cartoon <laughs> villains. They're just monologues. Not, yeah, not very good. Now... Harris did have a legitimate criticism, which we did talk about last episode, in that limitation of attachment theory is that it focuses on the attachment of the mother Mm -hmm. or the assumption that the mom is the primary caregiver, which, yeah, we we talked last time about how that is something that, like mom said, the strange situation protocol was all moms. It was all moms and they were very Caucasian, middle class, very, very very narrow. Yes. So there is some legitimate question about, okay, would this look different if it was the, the dad? You know, would those right. responses be different? Why, and why haven't we done enough? Yeah. differences might be. Right. Yeah. Which we, we talked about. Mary Ainsworth did a lot of work in, was it African Africa. countries? Mm-hmm. And we don't know why she didn't take that into account. You'd think if anyone would be prepared to be like, we should make this diverse, we should do this Mm -hmm. in different cultures, she would, but she didn't. Maybe she just didn't have the opportunity because she was in a very... She was in Baltimore. I think there's black people there. But it was a man's world and it was, you know, she was very... She had to fight for really hard to get where she did. Right. We don't know her stuff. We don't... We we should. We We did a whole episode (laughs) on her. But I mean like her real personal stuff. That's true. That's true. We couldn't ask her. (laughs) I wish. Yeah, that'd be cool. So that's secure attachment. All right. How about if I talk about anxious ambivalent? Please May I? May I do that? Mother, may I? Okay. So sometimes you might see anxious ambivalent attachment called resistant attachment. But that's like we said, there's a lot of different names for each of these. So we're going to stick with the anxious ambivalent. This is a child who has a pattern of attachment who, okay, in the strange situation, they would have explored a little bit but is very weary of strangers even if the parent is there when the caregiver would depart from the situation the child would get really upset totally freaking out (laughs) highly distressed however the child is generally ambivalent when the caregiver returns which kind of seems like a dichotomy right so they're really upset they freak out because they 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 leave but then when they come back it's like eh, whatever (laughs) it's kind of a funny (laughs) image just the caregiver leaves and they're like yeah. When they come back, they're like, ah, oh, eh. what, I didn't even yeah. care. Yeah. What, what, do you think I care? <laughs> so the anxious ambivalence strategy is a response to the caregivers being unpredictable. So right. we're back to the trust thing again. So the, the little person, the child has figured out that they can't really depend on that person to be there when they need them. And so when the caregiver comes back, they kind of do that, eh, whatever thing. <laughs> it's often displayed um, with anger. Sure. And they kind of sub... Oh, now you're back. Yeah. So they kind of subgroup here. So those children who displayed anger were called ambivalent resistant, which is kind of where that resistance came in above that I mentioned. Or the other way they might go is just kind of a real uh, helplessness kind of thing. And they call that ambivalent passive. But either way, it's like whatever. That's what ambivalent means. I know it's like a double. <laughs> that I mean, passive, really freaking like, so ambivalent. ambivalent. <laughs> so ambivalent that we I'm call passive. this type ambivalent ambivalent. <laughs> Super duper ambivalent. So it was basically, it's like 
it's a conditional strategy for maintaining that kind of like a little bit of control. Like, right. I know that you're not really going to respond to me when I need you. So, hey, I don't really need you okay. kind of attitude. Care. Yeah. And quite often that comes out as anger. When I was reading about this, I was thinking specifically about one of my clients who's now about fourth grade-ish. And there's often this anger toward mom, yeah. you know, for like no real apparent reason. And often it's kind of when she's trying to care give, he gets, he gets pissy with her. I mean, I think I get that on like a logical, I, if someone close to me were to not be attentive to my needs, like as an adult, right. and then they suddenly tried to care, I, yeah. I'd be like, what are you, get out of here. Especially when they're caring in front of someone else. Oh, and yeah. that's what I kind of get about this little client yeah. is it's kind of like, oh yeah, you're going to act like this with a therapist, right. but then when we're at home, you're not going to care, you right. know? So you might see that kind of angry tone or angry actions in these kind of children or adults for that matter. One other note about even with the ones who are being passive, ambivalent, yeah. ambivalent, ambivalent, ambivalent. <laughs> even though it doesn't show as anger, it's kind of the same thing, which is I'm not going to let you be in control of my emotions by right. suddenly swooping in and caring for me. Right. I'm going to push you away. So when this kind of affects us as adults, when we have this attachment as children and we grow into this anxious ambivalent attachment what you might have in your own lifetime is that that you might push away relationships and actually for both kinds that I'm going to talk about it kind of happens the same way as an adult I'll I'll just add this that there was a study one of the many studies done kind of following up on this was in 1999 by MacArthur and Taylor and that they found that children who were in abusive situations physically or emotionally were more likely to develop ambivalent attachments quite often the anger would show through but not always the study also found that children with ambivalent attachments were more likely to experience difficulties in maintaining relationships as adults that's interesting because one of the things i saw about disorganized which i'll talk in a little while about Mm -hmm. is that like the more directly harmful usually led to disorganized right so why would that lead to ambivalent i think that the more physically abusive they go in your direction okay like from what I read, this is more like neglectful abuse or yeah. kind of emotional like manipulation standoffish stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So if you grow up with that, you're going to struggle a little bit when you get to have intimate relationships and you need to maintain those as an adult. Right. You're not going to really trust people. Okay. Anxious avoidant. Uh, sometimes we call that, or you will see that called dismissive avoidant, which I don't like at all. But anxious. Again, ab- those seem like synonyms. Ex- I think it's just somebody else wanted to put their stamp on avoidant it. Avoidant avoidant. <laughs> so anxious avoidant. That was the- a cute laugh you just did, Mom. That was cute. Was that a good laugh? Yeah, I liked uh, it. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I can't ever laugh the same way twice. <laughs> I have a multitude it's of like laughter. The weirdest superpower I've ever heard. <laughs> a lot I of people make comments lot. about my laugh like that. It's you have a wonderful laugh. Oh, that's so sweet, baby. <laughs> it's actually kind of an obnoxious laugh. No, when I like go to movies and stuff, sometimes I feel really like I'm the only one laughing, <laughs> and I feel like people look at me like, "What is so no, funny?" No, I was talking to someone a few days ago about how I can echolocate you by your laugh because I know exactly what your laugh sounds like. So when you laugh like down a hall, I'll be like, my mom's down there. Beep, beep, beep. beep. Yep. Well, that's good. My bondar goes on. That's a good way to be located. I wouldn't want it to be like, she's screaming again. 
<laughs> she's, she's cursing everyone out. Burst into tears. And I'm like, that's my mom. <laughs> I oh, do that I too. Have a kid in, I have a kid in schools who like, if he, he has meltdowns every once in a while and there'll Aww. be like, I'll be a, with another client and I'll uh-huh. hear a You'll meltdown hear start happening. I'm oh, like, oh, no. that's my kid. I'm, oh no. Oh, oh no. Man, I'm have, sorry. Where were you? We all have something, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. Uh, anxious avoidant. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> anxious avoidant. Okay. So the infant who had anxious avoidant in the strange situation, they actually would literally avoid or ignore their caregiver, showing very little emotion, whether the caregiver was leaving or coming. They didn't care. Whatever. The infant would not explore very much at all, whether the, the caregiver was there or not. They just they have a very flat affect. Like they would actively move away from their caregiver? No, they would. Well, <laughs> one of the things they said was sometimes when they would come into the room, I thought this was kind of interesting. They would like walk toward them like they were glad to see them and they would like walk past them. <laughs> you know, it's like you go to give somebody a high five and, and then they you just do their yeah, hair like, thing. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, psych or whatever we used to say. Whatever, mom. You thought I was going for a high five? I was going for this toy down here. No high five for you. No high five for you, mom. So they did not really express very much distress at all on separation. Like I said, they either ignored the caregiver when they came in or they showed some type of, like I just said, an approach which would then be like to turn away. Like, ooh. Oof. Ooh. And when I was looking at this before we started recording, I said to you, that would just hurt my heart so bad. Yeah, but you're an attentive caregiver. You're the one who, yeah. Yeah. You're the one who started it. Yeah, you started it, mom. (laughs) Mommy, you started this. Ainsworth and Bell theorized that the apparently unruffled behavior, though, was actually a mask well, sure. for distress. And well, so that's they, the constant here is that all babies have that, like, fear and anxiety in this strange situation. Absolutely. It's just a matter of how they've learned to deal with it. Right. It's like, well, my caregiver isn't going to tend to me, so either I have to attend to it by myself or I have to, like, right. hide it exactly. and pretend I don't have it. So there were later, they did research where they actually studied the heart rate of the avoidant infants oh, yeah. and their heart rates did the similar things that the kids who were really uh, well, showing sure. their upset right. on the yeah, outside you know it. and and I don't know about you Anna but that kind of makes me it makes me think about some of my client kids who you want to say to them what is going why on you in more there? upset about this yeah what well, you know why aren't you showing more yeah. emotion why and it's it's that mask it's their defense mechanisms that they they're just yeah. trying not to be more hurt Sometimes I have a hard time telling between the anxious types because they seem very similar. I agree. Like, because I'm thinking, I'm actually thinking of one of my clients who, they were adopted at a very young age. And we've had a lot of talks about how, like, just because you can't remember your birth parents doesn't mean that you didn't get a lot of baggage from them. Exactly. And this is a key type. I mean, this develops before our memories kick in. Right. I think sometimes this client has a hard time conceptualizing how stuff that happened before she remembers would affect her. But she does this thing where when she's upset about something, she'll say, I don't care. I don't care anymore. I don't even Mm -hmm. care. So to me, it's like, okay, but is that avoidant because she's avoiding it? Or is it was ambivalent because she's acting like she doesn't care? Right. I mean, they're... They're very similar. They're very similar. They're very similar. I guess anger happened in the ambivalent right. more. That anger thing shows yeah. up a lot. Okay, so back to this anxious avoidant kiddo. 
when caregiver came back into the room, they would usually not go to the caregiver. Although it said in the research, it said that eventually if, the, if she did coaxing, they would come. But then when they got picked up or whatever, they would not really cuddle in like the other kids would mm-hmm. when they were. And they would kind of look away and eventually very quickly they'd squirm to get down. Which you, we talked about before we started recording that some toddlers... And you were like that, that you didn't like to be held a whole lot. You were not a cuddler. Uh-huh. And I believe we had a secure attachment, you and I. I want to You and believe. I did. Yes. But well, that doesn't necessarily mean that true. I did. That's true. I that's did true. take an online test. Uh-oh. You know how I love me some online tests. Oh, God, tests. no. And so what are you? Anxious avoidant? Okay, so here's the stupid thing. Anna, your attachment personality is anxious. That's two of them. What? Right. Said, people who anxiously attach tend to worry more about their relationships. They are said to experience an emotional hunger and are desperate for a fantasy type of love, which I don't agree with. You go, girl! I don't don't agree with that. (laughs) Unlike securely attached people, people with an anxious attachment tend to be desperate to form a fantasy bond of ideal love. Even when this might not be possible or reciprocated, they tend to look for a partner who can rescue them or complete them. That's not me. Unfortunately, their desperation sometimes can push away the exact person they want closeness with. When they are afraid of losing their partner, they can become clingy, possessive, paranoid, or need constant attention. That one's me. And a lot of the questions in the test were like, are you worried that your partner is going to leave you? Like Mm -hmm. it had some variation on that question. Mm -hmm. And I answered yes to a lot of them because Mm -hmm. I do have that fear because of the abandonment stuff I've gone through. Right, right. So it's, I do believe I probably have one of the anxious types. So... What was the test? Did it say, what is your attachment style or yeah. something like that? Yeah. Okay. I should have written it down, it, but it it's wasn't. It's hard to know how scientific those are sometimes. Yeah. I got it at scienceofpeople.com. Sounds legit. There's science psychology is, today. Why the hell didn't I take that one? Science is oh, in the name. Oh, because it makes me pay $7 for the full <laughs> results. Screw that, man. That was, was I'm not going to pay seven bucks to know stuff about myself. Yeah, not doing that. I'll just go online and get freebies. <laughs> I'll just do a podcast and figure it out. <laughs> and we'll just idiots. say it aloud. But what I was going to say about the squirminess is that some some toddlers are just more active and they they don't want right. to be held a lot. Right. And now that's what I always thought about you. But now I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I didn't know you at all. Yeah. As it may be. But I don't know. Like, because I... You just had things to do. Yeah, I just I was busy. I mean, you were loving toward me. Right. Like, you know, at night and I would I would lay with you and rub your back. Well, but, like, my, my nephew is like that too. Like, when you pick him up when he's not ready to kind of settle down and cuddle... He will be like, he's got stuff <laughs> like, to try do. to get down. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I have watched him with his parents, and and they're very loving, and I believe he has a secure attachment. Oh, absolutely. So it's like he, no, he's just busy. Right. He's got baby things to do. He's smart, and he's got stuff Here to explore. He is. Yeah. But that's part of secure attachment too, is that they want to right, explore. Exactly. So yeah, that might be a symptom of that. So it's hard to know if that's a. So I'm still, I'm still feeling a little guilty that you're not secure. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean. I mean, I guess it's like a spectrum. Yeah, I don't know if it fits so nicely Clearly. into the categories. Yeah, yeah. Most things about psychology don't fit nicely into categories. Yeah. I think that we have discovered through the, our brief experience with Yeah, most therapy. things are spectrums, I think. That's kind of true. So so just to kind of put this some closure on this, the people who struggled with this kind of avoidant anxiety attachment had a history of experiencing rebuff i like that word rebuff of attachment the infants that's needs that's when you're really muscular and then you sort of lose it a little bit but then you, then back, you back rebuff. To get muscular <laughs> you rebuff 
The infant's needs were frequently not met, and the infant had come to believe that communication of emotional needs had no influence on the caregiver. So they're like, I, it doesn't matter. Right. So screw Nothing it. I do is going to make right. them attend to so me. So just screw it. This category was was all the way from the really severe, like, complete maternal rejection right. all the way down to just, you know, mom being way too busy to, to stop and, and give a care. So Which is, so that's a bummer where, and as I was thinking of my own attachment style, I was thinking of my formative toddler years, my babyhood. Mm-hmm. I was babyhood. internally looking at my babyhood. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, again, more self-disclosure about my father situation, you were the one that was paying the bills. So you had more to do. You were holding down a couple jobs. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was hard to kind of get a lock on you for that. Right. And you were doing it for these really good reasons. But my baby brain maybe didn't know that. Well, of course not. And so maybe that's part of that. And I have no idea how dad treated me when, when you I wasn't around. around. When I was around, he was very attentive to you. But when I was... Yeah, mom, he's a sociopath. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Should we laugh at that? I, I am. I, I'm so sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. It's okay. fine. Your first instinct was to laugh. I think you should follow that. Oh, and then throw up. <laughs> okay, so basically when the, the little ones are avoiding the mommy, again, it's back to that idea of being in control. Because they're going to ignore me, so I'm going to ignore them first. Right. Even though it's a baby you brain. You can't fire me, I quit. Exactly. And also kind of a pushing way so that they don't get hurt more. Um, some of the research showed that they believe that part of it was like a protective mode. Like I'm not going to love them more than I absolutely have to. They did say, in the research they did say, they kind of had, they maintained that proximity to the caregiver, like physical proximity, but they wouldn't look at them. They wouldn't like smile into their eyes and that kind of thing. So it was like, okay, if they actually, you know, they need to save my life, it might be good if I'm close to them, but they probably aren't. So, so I'm just going to. it's manipulative, which well, is, very much. I mean, that's a bad way to say it, but that's adaptive. That's, right. I need to do what I need to do to get these people to care about me. Right. So basically, whether you're anxious, avoidant, or anxious, ambivalent, as an adult, you're going to have some issues with your relationships. Right. Because you don't trust is the bottom line. Right. Again, I keep going back to that. But, you know, when you build a relationship, you got to trust the person that you're in a relationship with. you got to believe they're going to be there the for your needs. Absolutely. Right. So that that's really hard. Okay. And the last one that Anna's going to talk about is... It's called Disorganized. This one's bad. <laughs> Sounds like my life, but this I don't think it's the rough. same thing. Okay. It's also called fearful, if that gives us any indication. Uh-oh. Ruh-roh. So originally, Mary Ainsworth was like, yes, all babies fit into these three categories. Good, less good, but they don't want to be around people, and less good, but sometimes they're mad. And then there were babies who are just so messed up. Originally, some of these kids that eventually would go on to be known to be disorganized type, sometimes called disorganized disoriented, because there's eight different names for each of these styles. So sometimes these kids were categorized as secure in the original test because, well, they're not ambivalent. They're not avoidant. They're kind of chaotic. They're a little disorganized. I mean, they are disorganized. Like, you can't really anticipate how they're going to react so that they're probably just secure because sometimes they look fine. Mm -hmm. And it was eventually realized that there were this whole other type, that this is the type that got added later that Mary put her stamp of approval on. But it said of the original tests that Ainsworth and her colleagues, why did I call her Ainsworth? 
Mary. Mary. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Mary. We know her better than that. Mary. You don't have We're to on call first name yes. basis with all of our psychologists Please. here. Mary and her colleagues sometimes observed, quote, tense movements such as hunching the shoulders, putting the hands behind the neck and tensely cocking the head, and so on. It was our clear impression that such tension movements signified stress, both because they tended to occur chiefly in the separation episodes and because they tended to be pro... Oh, I don't know what that word is. Prodromal to crying. I don't know what that word means. Anna found a word she doesn't know. So she has to look it up. Well... It's a it's a medicine. I don't think that's what it means. I don't know what it means. Google doesn't know what it means. If Google doesn't know what it means, it's not a real word. Precursor. Oh, okay. So before sure. they cried. Before they cried. Why didn't they just say that? I don't know. Why do they have to use that big freaking fancy word? Hoity McToity. <laughs> so because they tended to be a precursor to crying. Indeed, our hypothesis is that they occur when a child is attempting to control crying, for they tend to vanish if and when crying breaks through. So these these the like, tension, tension, tension movements yeah. stop is, if they start to cry. Right. It's like, well, forget it. I, oh I couldn't gosh. control it. What? I there's I have a client who that's that's exactly some light bulbs are oh my gosh that's exactly him he does a weird thing where he like puts his hands up like on his forehead like in fists like his fists Uh uh-huh and then as soon as he lets go and cries a little bit then his whole body just relaxes those are so important like from the other side of the couch here like from Mm -hmm. the psychologist's point of view one of the most important thing about being a counselor is being attuned to your clients and Mm -hmm. those moments are the ones that are most important to me at least right where you can tell the client wants to cry. Right. And sometimes, usually, all it takes is me going, I can tell you want to cry, just cry. Right. It's and okay that's to all let it takes. It go. Yeah. yeah. Just giving yeah. them permission. Right. And then You're the floodgates open. You're in a safe place. That's yeah. something that I say sometimes. And then, whoosh. right. Yeah. So eventually, Mary Maine added the disorganized attachment type. Mm-hmm. And basically, what disorganized means is that the behavior of the infant doesn't coordinate. With the comings and goings of the caretaker. So instead of being dictated by... What the hell does this note mean? I was a little drunk when I wrote these. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another reason we're not drinking today. Yeah. Because last night we had some marks. We, we had some marks <laughs> last night. And I don't know what this, I don't know what this note means. <laughs> I'm going to read you word for word what it says. Okay. Doesn't coordinate with the comings and goings of the caretaker. Instead being dictated by the flooding of the attachment style by fear. Okay, okay. So instead of like coordinating to what the caretaker is doing, the baby is just just focusing on their own fear and anxiety. Right, right. Got it. So the other types, even the anxious ones, the way the babies respond to what the caretaker is doing makes sense. They're Mm -hmm. organized. We can anticipate what they're going to do. Not necessarily healthy. Like the the way they're responding to the caretaker isn't isn't secure, but like even in the anxious types, we can anticipate what they're going to do. And again, I will reiterate, unhealthy does not necessarily mean it was never helpful. What we now know to be maladaptive tendencies usually develop because they were at one point adaptive. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about, like these babies do these things because I have to do this because my caretaker won't caretake for me if I don't do these things. Right. So then later in life, if they're manipulative or something, it's because they had to do that at one point to get their needs met. 
Right. And then later on, it's unhealthy. But they display this fear or this kind of contradictory behavior, like the jerky movements that, that Ainsworth was talking about. And sometimes they like dissociate, which is just kind of like leaving your body mentally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of no rhyme or reason behind how they're going to react to what the caretaker is doing. One observer noticed that disorganized kids usually do seek comfort from the caregiver about half the time they do, but then stop this behavior with no clear connection to how the caretaker is responding to this seeking comfort. So they'll like go toward the caretaker for that comfort and reassurance. And regardless of what the caretaker does, it's like you can't tell how the infant is going to respond. And so somehow inside that fear thing is triggering and they... Right. That even if the caretaker is comforting them, that doesn't necessarily mean the baby is going to feel comforted. It's an internal trigger and not external that's causing that for them. Right. That's frightening. Right. So basically this is the exact opposite of secure attachment. Right. The other end of the spectrum. Right. These kids don't have a secure base. They don't have the trust that we keep talking about in their caregivers. They don't trust that the caregivers will stay. They don't trust that the caregivers will come back if they leave. That's just not there. So when this caregiver, the secure base, is abusive, the child sees this as life-threatening, which in many cases it is. Right. I mean, if their caretaker is not giving them the care and the meeting their needs, that's horrifying. I mean, from an outside perspective, but when that's all you know, all you know is fear. And so the instincts of this baby are fighting against her because her instinct says, I need to go to this safe place. The safe place is my caretaker. And then when they go to the safe place, that's the thing that's being hurtful. That's the thing that's a source of anxiety and fear. Uh, I heard this style described as fright with no solutions. Oh, God, that's awful. Isn't that horrible? Total hopelessness. Exactly. So these kids often look like they need to seek care from adults because their survival depends on it. They need to find these adaptive strategies to find approval and safety. But when their caretaker isn't stable, the kid's not able to rely on a stable or organized strategy to find this comfort and these these security needs. Right. So they have to be ready to adapt at any time. So how this might look in an adult, okay, first, parent who has a disorganized attachment with their child may not be good at emotional regulation. So when they're in stress, they might be frightened of the stress or they might be, or and or I guess, be frightening for their child. So they may act erratically. They may act in a really confusing way. Uh, They often can't express themselves clearly and can't form like a coherent narrative of what's going on. They can't really make sense of what they're experiencing. For a kid who grew up with a disorganized attachment style, they often also don't have good ways of self-soothing. That basically means that if they're upset, they can't... Calm themselves. Down. Yeah. They can't cope with it. Right. Uh, well, gosh, in that, in, that, in that experience of total hopelessness like right. that, what's the well, point? Well, you know? if fear is just your constant, right. it's, you almost don't know that you cannot be scared. Right. It's like, We're I don't have to self-soothe. We're talking this total trauma. Yeah. Just trauma. Oh, yeah. This is yeah. the trauma style, basically. Yeah. And this could lead to all kinds of social trouble, as you might imagine. So... They might use others as a tool to help regulate their emotions, which can seem kind of codependent. They might be chaotic. They might be insensitive. They might have explosive anger. They might be abusive toward others. And they can be untrusting while also craving security. And this can lead to attempts to control or coerce the caregiver when they're when they're a child, but also like 
others, like other social or their partners or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep putting the hard to trust thing in there because that's the basis that's, of this. Yeah, exactly. That's the root. Yeah. So this hard to trust, obviously, because they learned way back when that the person that they're supposed to trust, the only person they're supposed to trust is not able to take care of them or might even go so far as to mistreat them. Mm-hmm. So of course they can't trust people. Exactly. I used the term earlier that this is their blueprint. Right. So the That's only really person that they're supposed to trust to take care of them and to get their needs met can't do that. Can't do the basic. Right. So, yeah, you grow up. Of course, you're not going to trust other people to do it because the one person who should have wasn't able to. Right. Or actively hurt you. And, and so, yeah, you're not going to be able... You're going to generalize that. Exactly. But, but Anna. But, Anna, how do we fix it? <laughs> should I have said that? No, you didn't know. Oh, okay. You should, you should give me my script before <laughs> you we start. Us, I slide, they just hear like, as <laughs> slide a paper over Say to you. This. But Anna, how do we fix this? Thanks for asking, Mom. I'm so glad you asked with no prompting. So the good news here is that it can be fixed. Where, and I, I believe this kind of generalizes to fixing anxious types as well. Mm-hmm. So step one is, and this is kind of just trauma work in general. Step one is making sense of your story and mm-hmm. reclaiming your trauma narrative, reclaiming that bad attachment, recognizing how it affects you. Right. Like examining how that is affecting your current life. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, it's my past. My past is my past. It's not true. Your past can be your present if you're letting it affect you and mm-hmm. if it's built into you. It's part of who you are. Yeah. yeah. It created your current situation. Right. So yeah, it is affecting you. It is your present. Helping them understand how it is the blueprint. I guess I'll keep using that word. Mm-hmm. How it's not just like a thing that happened and then it's over. It's not over. It's how you're actively interacting with people around you. Right. And through this, through this like retaking of the trauma narrative, they can learn to face this pain and confront it and kind of not let that trauma have as much control over them. And this comes with building better relationships with others. It comes with building a better sense of their own emotions. And that leads to better kind of emotional resilience, like being able to handle that stuff and being able to manage it. And building those self-soothing techniques that we didn't learn before, basically. Right, right. And this is just breaking the cycle. I mean, that's all it is. It's it's being able to look at the way your relationships in your childhood are bleeding into your relationships now and saying, I don't want to do that again. Right. Mom has such a sad look on her face right now. She's so sad. <laughs> I am sad. I do want to ask. So, I mean, this kind of goes back to the conversation we were having earlier. That as I was reading this, the question that kept popping into my mind is, what if you only had one parent who had a good attachment? So like when we were talking last time, one of the things with attachment theory is, okay, attachment is attachment with at least one caregiver. Right. You only had to have one. Right. But right. what if you had both? When I read that, I think, okay, if you have like a single caregiver. Right. So like if you have a single mother or a single father and you have a good attachment style with that, that's great. You probably have a secure attachment. But what if you have one of each? How does your baby does brain one, make sense of that? Yeah, does one contradict and, and erase the other one? I don't know the answer to that, do you? I don't either. I mean, I think they both affect you. Because I, I think, think so of too. you, when you were talking about, you know, self-disclosure of that you feel that you are the anxious type. Right. But I see a lot of signs in you of the secure type, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it goes back to, I think, that spectrum thing. 
That, and and also I think it depends on literally the day. You know, the well, kind of mood you're on. in. Yeah, the kind of stress you're under in that situation and what's going on in your life. Because I can feel pretty securely attached, but if I think my husband's mad at me, holy crap. Yeah. I go to that anxious style for right. sure. Exactly. I'm like, oh, he's going to leave me. Like, it's it gets bad. Uh-huh. It, and it's instinctive. I mean, it's built into my brain. Right. So... Yeah, I mean, I think that well, then I, it can be a percentage, not mm-hmm. necessarily a, a one or the other. I was thinking too, as long as you're kind of throwing out different things, I was thinking what I believe is that we could have like a secure attachment from our childhood. And if we go through a really hard, horrible relationship, right, it can, it can, that. it can turn us to the point where we are anxious then. Yeah. Then that we feel that we can't trust our partner or we can't trust anyone or whatever because that person that we did trust that we believe because we were raised to believe that we can right, trust that person, right. it can really, you know, put us on our ear for a while. That goes into, this is a little bit of a tangent, but those <laughs> kind of relationships where you're isolated, I mean, like in, in like abusive, manipulative relationships where yep. you get like cut off from your friends and family, mm-hmm. the only person you're relying on is this person who's hurting you or who will eventually hurt you. Like that can hit even harder because you don't have, your brain doesn't have like a baseline to compare it to. Right, right. So be careful of that. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. <laughs> Make wise choices. Make wise choices. <laughs> we just, but seriously, if you feel like you or someone else is getting cut off from people because of a romantic relationship, like. That's a big deal. Run. Right. Run. That's my weird PSA that I didn't think I'd be making this episode. I don't know. I don't know what that had. No, it's... it's, Don't do it. I think it's a PSA that we should always do. Yeah. If someone separates you from your the rest of your support system, that's not healthy. That's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we summarize this? Uh, It's again... Self-awareness. Gosh. We always do that, don't we? I don't think Anne is feeling normally herself today. My nose is full. Oh, she, she's she's pushing on her sinuses and it is. That's her, how I can tell it's not the corona. Her little it's eyes because are... this this feels like a head cold mm. because I have had so many of those in my life. <laughs> you know how it feels. It's a sinus. So once again, if if some of the information that you heard today in this episode ring some bells for you whether it's for you personally maybe you're struggling with maintaining healthy relationships as an adult right or maybe you have a child or your grandchild or you're dealing with children or an adult yeah that that some of these things ring a bell and you go oh that might be part of it right it's the first step is that self-awareness so to to either yourself acknowledge that or help that person and i'm just gonna say if you're struggling with it therapy is Ding. is gonna help <laughs> so um, get yourself to a counselor. And if you're already a person who struggles with trust, that's going to be hard to do. Yeah. But you have to make a choice to take that first step. Right. To get counseling. You have to say to yourself, this is going to be hard to do, but, but it's worth it. I can do it. Yeah. I can do this to, right. to be better, to feel better. Right on. Right. Because trust is important in relationships. We talk all the time about how life is about relationship. Right. Not just romantic relationships. No. All relationships. Yep. I feel like I'm getting more nasally as I know you're going to pretty soon you're just going to go and not be able to breathe at all. Uh, So maybe I should thank the listeners. Should I do that? Thank the listeners. (laughs) Because I don't want Anna to thank you. Thanks. Because then I have to say a lot more words. (laughs) So, Sipsters, we certainly appreciate 
that you are with us and that you tell your friends about us and that you review us, that you give us a review because Please we review love us. to hear from you. And um, you want to plug more stuff? You're on a roll. I was just going to say, we still have merch. We still, we still have, have merch. merch. That's a thing that um, exists. Go to, go to our site. FreudianSipsPod.com. And look at the merch because it's pretty cool stuff. Look at the merch. Buy the merch is the buy most the important step. Look at it first. Just look at then it. Then buy it. <laughs> then buy it for your friends and your family as well. Yes. And, uh, Easter's coming up. <laughs> Give Easter gifts. Easter presents. And stay healthy. Stay healthy. Take care of yourselves. Wash your hands. Do for as God's I sake. say, not as I please wash your hands. <laughs> Everybody wash your hands. Not only when there's corona, just all the just, time. It's just a thing just we should be do doing. That. Wash our hands. Hot take. Wash your hands all the time. <laughs> okay, that's all I got, Anna. Okay. Take it home, baby. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the social medias. We're Freudian Sips Pod on all of them. As we said, our site is FreudianSipsPod.com. Our email, FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com. Patreon is there. I'm so sorry to our one patron that we have not done episodes for Murder Yet to Come in a while. We're getting to it. Yep. It's been a hard few weeks. <laughs> We're getting there. We'll do it. I promise. Like Mom said, leave us a nice rating and review wherever you can do that. Send me some good vibes so I stop being sick, please. <laughs> All right. Our theme music is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, and it sounds like this. <laughs> it sounds like that. Nose blow, nose blow, oh, nose blow. Oh, oh.